is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today I'm talking with Dr. Marnie Anderson, Associate Professor of History and Director of East Asian Studies at Smith College. Dr. Anderson's most recent publication is Critiquing Concubinage, Sumiya Kome and Changing Gender Roles in Modern Japan, published in Volume 37 of Japanese Studies in 2017. Dr. Anderson, thank you for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. In your research, you've really highlighted the political agency of women's groups in Japan, especially those groups who, despite not having voting rights, are still able to assert what you've called literacy agency. So what's happening in the Meiji period that makes it this moment that sparks the beginning of feminism in Japan? Right. So it's a really interesting question. I don't use the term feminism in my work, um, even though that rubric does get applied to to my research, in part because, if you'll permit me to sort of go off for a little bit here, you know, the term feminism isn't coined until after the turn of the 20th century. Um, and it's very much focused on, on the suffrage. But in the Meiji period, you know, in the 1880s, where my research, my first book project was set, women didn't have the vote anywhere around the world at the national level. It wasn't until New Zealand um, gave women the suffrage in 1893 that that was even a thing. So I find that the sort of Meiji activism around women's rights is not so much centered on suffrage. And I took a lot of inspiration from the U.S. historian Nancy Cott, who talked about this moment as a womanist movement rather than a feminist um, movement in my research. As to why, you know, women start forming organizations and talking about raising women's status during this period, you know, there are really several reasons. But one is as the nation state forms in Japan, the, the question of the status of women becomes of concern, not just to women, but also to male elites, because at the time, the status of women is taken as a barometer of a country's level of civilization. And so men really start the conversation in the early Meiji period, and eventually women join in, uh, especially in the late 70s and early 1880s. And then this really culminates, I think, in 1890, when the first diet meets and women initially aren't even allowed to sit (laughs) in on the diet proceedings, um, although they do protest and manage to get the right to at least observe the diet course, women don't get political rights during this moment, but neither do most Japanese men either. That universal manhood suffrage doesn't come until 1925. And that's also the first time that you really get a women's suffrage movement in Japan during the 1920s. So I think that story is a little bit later than the setting for my first book. You mentioned that what's happening in the Meiji period is being defined by male intellectuals. And I've always thought it was somewhat ironic that you know we, we think of people like uh, Fukuzawa Yukichi or, or Mori Arinori, uh, who are seen as these champions of progressivism in Japan. And you would assume that they're kind of womenists in their own right, or, or maybe for gender equality in their own right. But then there is these kinds of internal inconsistencies where Fukuzawa doesn't even allow his own daughters to, to get educated. Right, right. And I think part of it is just the standards have changed a lot. You know, what counts as progressive today is quite different from what counts as progressive at that time. You know, and I argue in my book, and it's been a while since I've looked through the particulars, but even Ueki Emori, who's generally seen as sort of a champion of women's rights, um, doesn't 
hold up or he's not as consistent as he might appear to be when you actually dig deeper. And I compare him to John Stuart Mill on this, that in fact, these men, while they talk about women's rights, what they really mean most of the time is rights for a very few select women who have certain qualifications. But the other argument that I was making in my book, A Place in Public, is that with the rise of the nation state, women become a category as never before, and that in the previous period, you know, status or mibun was even more important than gender in defining one's social position. And as a result of this, once we hit the Meiji period, much of the discussion about rights for women early on is, is about rights not for all women, but rights for female household heads. That is, in these 10% of households headed by women, they should have the right to vote. And that's really the setting for, for the anecdote that many textbooks um, relate about Kusano Sekita in the 1870s, refusing to pay taxes if she couldn't vote. Um, she was a household head, and it's on that basis that she's making her claim rather than, you know, as a woman, she should have equality. Speaking of textbook narratives, there's always this conflation of the Meiji period position of women as Ryosai Kembo. But you've also talked about how that really doesn't come until much later. Right. <laughs> I, I think that that term has sort of become synonymous with Meiji women in people's minds, which is unfortunate because, of course, you know, as an official state policy for middle class women's education, it matters, especially after 1899. But somehow I think that's read back to the whole of the Meiji period. Um, and it's it turns out, Sekiguchi Sumiko has has pointed out, it turns out that, you know, we all think that this term Ryosei Kembo comes in the Meirokuzashi, that Nakamura Masanao uses it. But in fact, that term does not appear once <laughs> in the Meiroku essay. So you know, Sekiguchi and other work has talked about, you know, various formulations of that slogan circulating in the late Tokugawa period, but it be doesn't become a hegemonic ideology until, you know, the turn of the 20th century. So we're really, you know, for, for Meiji women in the 70s and 80s, this is really a period before Ryosei Kembo. So then it has to do more with Mibun, their position in the household, and maybe even class? Yeah, I mean, I think all those things are playing a role. I mean, you know, status is formally abolished in the 1870s, but of course it lives on. It doesn't disappear overnight. Um, and then economic clash is becoming more and more of a divider. So I think all of these things are coming together. And of course, you know, as is the case around the world, the first set of women to make claims tend to be, you know, educated women who are relatively privileged coming out of, you know, the new middle class. And sometimes they're of Shizoku background. So, so they're not really even representing all women. <laughs> you know, they, they tend to be arguing for their own rights. Right? And this is the case of, you know, the women's rights arguments around the world in the 19th century. You mentioned it's not a suffragist movement. Then. How is it that these women are asserting a political voice during the Meiji period? So I'm arguing for a wider definition of what counts as political, which, of course, is in line with a lot of scholarship over the last 30 years. You know, suffrage comes to matter a lot later. And it's not that it's not on people's radars. But again, you know, women don't have suffrage anywhere in the world at this time. And even the Meiji Constitution gives suffrage to something like 1.1% of the male population. So it's, it's less about suffrage and more about an enhanced status for women. I think what women are doing, they're asserting themselves in forms such as petitions. You have female speakers, most famously Kishida Toshiko and Fukuda Hideko. 
And then after the path to politics and political engagement is pretty much barred emphatically by 1889 and 1890 in the form of these series of laws, then women find other ways to claim a place in public, mostly in this realm that the British historian Leonor Davidoff has called the social. So, you know, in, in social reform movements, movements that are ostensibly not political and in line with sort of gender ideals for women. But in fact, if you look at them from a different angle, you could argue that they are indeed political and they're definitely a sort of, that they are a space in public, in fact. Of course, you know, high politics becomes a masculine domain. You recently published this article critiquing concubinage, talking about Sumia Kolme and changing gender roles, and locating this in the early 1870s before the Yulsai Kembo becomes this hegemonic idea. So is this an example then of women who are participating in the construction of femininity in Japan in the early Meiji period? Or can we talk about in the 1870s, are, are women participating in this construction? That's a really good question. Um... I mean, I, th- I think they are, and in, in, you can find it in forums like Letters to the Editor. Women's groups really burst onto the scene in a major way in, in the 1880s and 90s, and I see it more explicitly there that they're you know contributing to definitions of femininity. One thing that's so hard about pinning things down, and this won't come as a surprise to you, I'm sure, is just how much things are in flux in the early Meiji period. So probably one way to do it is to look at individual lives. Unfortunately, I don't think Sumia, who I did publish on recently, is is that helpful in this regard, just because she was not participating in the kinds of organizations that people's rights activists were. You know, she starts out life as a geisha and then becomes a concubine to this famous notable in Okayama. He invites Christian missionaries to Okayama in the 1870s and decides it's a good idea to send her to Kobe College, which she goes for a year. And then he calls her back because he misses her. And she ends up dumping him because she's decided that concubinage is sinful. And he goes around telling people that Jesus stole his mistress. (laughs) And then she goes on to assist with the Okayama orphanage, along with Ishii Juji, and then be involved in a whole bunch of other reform networks in Okayama. So, you know, in her life, she provides an example of one woman's life before Biosai Kembo (laughs) took hold, because, you know, in part, she she was never even a wife. But I I don't think she's representative other Japanese women during this time. (laughs) So then how does the position of women in Japan change from the Tokugawa period into the Meiji period? Well, Tristan, that's that's a huge question. I, one of my teachers was Hitomi Tonomura, who is a pre-modernist, and, and enforced upon me the importance of pre-1600 history. And you know, she also had a special interest in women's history, so I, I have a good dose of Tokugawa women's, women's history as well. And in fact, I, I teach a course that traces Japanese women's history from earliest times up through the Tokugawa period. Um, so what I teach my students, with the caveat that I am not a specialist, is that Tokugawa women's lives vary greatly by status. The the image that we tend to have of Tokugawa women as sort of suffering, you know, cloistered women, that may apply to some of the higher level samurai women, but samurai were, you know, some 6% of the population in cities. Merchant women seem to have enjoyed, you know, a lot more... I don't want to use the word freedom, but mobility and ran businesses. And so I think that women's lives were characterized by great diversity. 
And there's wonderful research out there done by Ann Walthall and others that touches on this diversity. So what the Meiji period does is by forging a modern state, we end up with women being a political category in a way they never were before the Meiji Restoration. You know, the Tokugawa government, to my knowledge, you know, while gender differences were certainly on, you know, government officials' minds, women were not a political category in the Tokugawa period. mentioned teaching. So when you're teaching the Meiji period in your in your classrooms, what are some of the themes you use to introduce this period? So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. Because I'm at a liberal arts college, I teach very widely. <laughs> I teach all of Japanese history, and I teach all of modern East Asia since 1800. I don't get to spend very much time on the Meiji period, um, because I'm usually teaching a big survey. So I you know, I don't think the themes that I introduce are particularly novel. You know, we talk about, of course, change and continuity. Um, and then we tend to use in my class, you know, some of the slogans of the Meiji period, like Bumekaika, Civilization and Enlightenment, and then Fukoku Kyohei, those sorts of slogans as sort of shorthand for understanding some of the major changes. I'm often rushing to get to the 1880s because I started out as someone deeply interested in the Diumingkenungo or Freedom and People's Rights Movement, and I always like talking about that with students. So I also talk about, you know, Japan in its quest to become a great power in its own right, how very early on in the Meiji period it starts building, trying to build up an empire, pushing a, a treaty on Choson Korea that is very much, you know, the same sort of treaty as the United States put on it in the 1850s. So, you know, imperialism is definitely another theme as well that I bring up. You've asked some folks about materials that they use in class, and Ann Walthall and Bill Steele's new documentary reader um, on the Meiji Restoration is fabulous. The introduction is probably the most straightforward <laughs> explanation of the factors leading up to the Major restoration and the years that followed. Um, it's concise. It's under 30 pages, the introduction that is, and there's, you know, wonderful documents. So I found that to be a great resource. In your classes, what other kind of materials do you use to introduce the Giuminkanundo to your students? Yeah, um, I like using Bill Steele's essay from the human tradition in modern Japan. Once in a while, uh, I will use, you know, something that I wrote a long time ago, I've thought always that it would be useful to write up a summary that reflects some of the recent scholarship, but I have not gotten around to that yet. So if I don't, hopefully someone else uh, will. One thing I've been using that doesn't quite fit in with the Dio Minkenundo, but I think is a great teaching resource, is the translation of Tatsuichi Horikichi's The Stories Closed Tell, which is a wonderful collection of stories about items of clothing from ordinary people that an archivist saved up over time and he writes the stories of these clothes and that I used last week and it was really effective in the classroom getting students to think about you know the, the historical record and bias in favor of elites is one that's hard to overcome but looking at clothes is is one way to, to get at it. 
One other thing that I'm thinking about that, that my students would surely tell me I must include is that my work on you know women activists, uh, women women's rights activists in the Meiji period and beyond, really only captures the experience of a certain group of women. And of course, when we think about the Meiji period, we have to think about you know the factory workers and the textile mills. We have to think about prostitutes, both within Japan and abroad, who are providing critical capital for Japan's modernization. So while my work, you know, focuses on, you know, relatively educated, relatively privileged women, there are all these other social groups who have important and different stories to tell. And I'm especially mindful of this after having students read Degutinao's biography, you know, which really takes the position of a woman who was very much disadvantaged by the policies of the Meiji state and unquestionably suffered as a result of them. So those are good things to remember, or not necessarily good things, but important things to remember as well when we think about this topic of Meiji women. mentioned the Giuminkenundo. I've been thinking about this a lot myself lately. And and really, it just the Giuminkenundo as not necessarily the, the samurai uh, involvement in it from the early 1870s and the actual petition of 74, but more how it becomes a popular movement in the 1880s. And you get these kind of village learned societies and the kind of uprisings of Villagers, is there a connection? Do you think between the Ajanaika Yo Naoshi movements of the 1860s to the Jiuminkenundo of the 1880s to even as far as you know 19-teens, we get all of these riots in Tokyo. Is there something going on here where this is a, a kind of a collective reaction to the Meiji state, or are these completely isolated events? Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I, I had students in my class on protest this semester read Emily Ohms's book on Deguchi now and she you know makes the argument that the Chichibu group in the 80s at least the 1880s was sort of um, drawing on the Yonaoshi movement and I see that that slogan Yonaoshi was present at Chichibu I, I tend to think of Jiu Minkenundo as you know maybe having some roots some of the repertoire of protest came from earlier periods but that it's very much you know a, a product of the modern period <laughs> and you know initially you know, begun by the samurai from Tosa and other places who are not part of the new government and seeking more power for themselves and then these ideas sort of trickle down not just to to male farmers but also to women which is sort of where I began my story back in graduate school, my research back in graduate school. So while there may have been sort of ties to this earlier movement, I don't really, I haven't really seen them in my own research. I also think it's high time someone take on the Jiu Minken Undo again in English in light of all the scholarship that's been coming out in Japanese over the last several decades which really divides the Jiuminkenundo into several different <laughs> movements, you know, and Jiuminkenundo is sort of an umbrella term that makes it sound like they're all one. But I think that, you know, the scholarship of people like Inara Masahiro and Makihara Norio, 
you know, we, we need to read it for sure, but also, you know, revise our understanding of what happened in the 1880s in light of it. I always point out to my students when introducing the G. Minkanundo that, you know, Itagaki Taisuke releases this, this great petition, of course, talking about legislative assemblies and popular elections. And it, it sounds a lot like democracy, but then in his speeches, he's saying, well, we don't want to let the peasants vote or anything like this. Right, right. And, you know, this sort of, to sort of cycle back to earlier, we see this phenomenon throughout the world, right? Even, you know, the women's suffragists in the United States, they were not interested in giving the suffrage to everybody. It was just more like women such as themselves. Um, and I, I think we find this pattern throughout the world, that, that these claims are really much more limited than they might seem. being the Meiji at 150 podcast and the sesquicentennial of the Meiji restoration. And we could talk about, is, is there is 1868 a meaningful date? And, you know, with the caveat that maybe as historians, we fetishize dates too much. But, but one thing that's nice about anniversaries is they're a moment to reflect on things. So looking back on the Meiji period and, and the growth of these women's movements, and then keeping in mind that you know, today in Japan, there's a similar emphasis on women's activities. Is there lessons that we can draw from the Meiji period for today? It's really hard to draw direct lines between the past and the present. You know, I, I really am persuaded that the Meiji period, you know, radically changes, you know, the way that women as a group are conceived, right? Women become a political category, and yet that doesn't happen overnight. I think what the Meiji Restoration does is it takes away the variety of practices that existed throughout the early modern period and homogenizes them. And that in the process, the limited rights that some women enjoyed are done away with. So, you know, if there's sort of a, a, a takeaway about the Meiji Restoration, it's that, you know, yes, there are new opportunities for women and there are also new constraints. For example, you know, there's an essay on how the rates of women going to school actually decline in Yamanashi Prefecture after the Meiji Restoration. So I think I'm I'm sort of trying to challenge any idea that may still be remaining that Meiji somehow brings about unqualified liberation for women. As far as taking away limited rights, Sekiguchi Sumiko has this argument that in some ways the restoration is directed against women and that the oligarchs are very intent on removing powerful female officials who existed at court, and as well as in the Tokugawa Bakufu. So in fact, the term joken, which is now translated as women's rights, at that point meant women's power. And some of the men who went on to become the oligarchs were very interested in getting rid of that power. Yokoyama Yuriko has talked about in her studies of Edo commoners that some women had property rights in the Edo period and that this was possible because 
the sort of limited property rights that women enjoyed so long as they used male mediators were done away with after the, the restoration. So the restoration sort of takes diverse practices and gets rid of them and makes things uniform in a way they'd never been before. To get back to your, your question about voting rights, people have voting rights throughout the early Meiji period. It's just not at the national level. And so at the local level, they're voting. They're even voting in some places in the late Tokugawa period. And when women do vote, and in some cases they do, it is because they are household heads. And that's possible because these ideas of corporate identity persist after the restoration for a time. But increasingly, in a messy process, the vote becomes centered on the individual male household head (laughs) who is wealthy. So then the vote at the national level is given only to a few men. But there were, you know, voting people throughout Japan who didn't have the vote at the national level in the first few decades of the Meiji period. So perhaps we can think of 1868 as a break point, but maybe not a break for the better. Right. And and I think probably the, the, the real breaking point from the perspective of things like this is in the early 1870s <laughs> with the um, advent of the Jinshin Koseki, um, the new household registration law. Um, which happens at roughly the same time as status is formally abolished. So a lot of these processes really start to unfold in the early 1870s. So then is 1868 a meaningful date? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's one of those questions that, I mean, I guess in your own thinking about the, the Meiji Restoration and the Meiji period as a whole, you know, in this old kind of age-old question of rupture or continuity. Yeah. I mean... For historians, it's always both, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, for for my classes, um, 1868 is absolutely, you know, a change. You know, the fall of the old order, the start of a new one, even if we don't quite know where we're going yet <laughs> in the early Meiji period. But as one textbook puts it, you know, it, it, the actual events are more like a coup d'etat, and it's the, revolu- the, the changes that follow that are truly revolutionary. So I I see these debates about rights for household heads um, and the unraveling of the status system. These are all part of the revolutionary changes that happen later. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.